Good morning, everyone. Welcome back from a 4th of July weekend to another edition of Monday Morning Live Devotionals, both here on Facebook and on the Sovereign Hope Church podcast, which we hope you'll check out. Um, Hopefully your 4th of July weekend was great. We were able to sneak away um, Wednesday through Saturday and and be back Saturday so we could be at church on Sunday. we uh, actually went to uh, a lake where my family has a cabin, and uh, my microphone's not in front of me. Let me do that. Sorry if I did not sound as great. Um, had a, a wonderful situation of do-goodery gone bad. Uh, we found that there was a pontoon boat next to our place that broke down, and so uh, I got in the I didn't know this is why I'm being called over. I thought uh, my son, who was on a paddleboard over there, got tired. So we went over there to get him and found out this boat had broken down and all I had in the boat with me was my five-year-old daughter, Adley. And so I ended up towing them to the boat launch. Um, and uh, at one point, I had to let Adley, and if any of you know Adley, you know there's nothing more terrifying than what I'm about to say, uh, steer our boat while under power next to a dock while I unhooked the pontoon boat uh, from our boat. And, uh, and then on the way back from dropping off that boat, our boat broke down. And so we had to be towed by a pontoon boat back to our dock. And so that was, uh, our fun, uh, that was actually on the 3rd of July. So hopefully your 4th of July was, uh, as relaxing as fun, but hopefully with less breakdowns. So, Here we are. We are continuing to go through the F260 Bible reading plan. We're in the book of Esther and uh, the context of where we are. We remember there's uh, God's people have been brought captive into Babylon and there are parts of uh, the Jews who have been released to go back to Jerusalem to start to rebuild the temple. We just finished Ezra where we saw some of that happening. And now we are drawing uh, attention away from Jerusalem and we're going back into Babylon and we are reading about the interactions of God's people there. And so I'm going to give today's reading was Esther 5, 6, and 7, if I'm correct. Yes. And so what I'm going to do for those of you who haven't um, had time over the weekend to read the first few chapters of Esther. I'm just going to give a really quick overview of the whole book to get up to where we are, and then we'll look at just the three questions that are helpful when we do our devotions. Uh, right, This is unique from Bible study. We use a lot of the same Bible study principles in doing devotions, but sometimes we don't have the time. And so we want to be able to just quickly uh, look at this text, kind of see what this text is pointing to in terms of how we look up and see God, how we look in and see ourselves, and how we look out in terms of how does this apply our hearts uh, or apply to our lives from our hearts. Uh, So, just an overview of Esther. Uh, Basically, we meet this guy named King Asherus, and we find out that he is a king, a powerful king, but also a very petty king. Uh, He invites his queen to come and kind of dance before his, uh, his friends, and she says no. And because of that, his pride is offended. And so he starts this massive search to find a new queen, a queen who will be submissive to her husband, which is ironic um, because uh, the his advisors say, hey, if everyone hears how Queen Vashti treated you, then no one is going to um, obey their husband. But what's interesting is when we see Esther, 
Um, she is, in a sense, very obedient to her husband, King, but she's more obedient to God. And that's the irony of all of this, is that uh, Esther's obedience shows itself in grace towards everyone, but chiefly it shows great obedience and boldness towards the God of Israel. And so, anyway, uh, they start this search for a new queen, and he brings in all sorts of suitors, and uh, they find Esther, who is the niece of a man named Mordecai, who is her uncle, and Mordecai adopted her after her parents died, and Esther is very, very beautiful, and so uh, during this uh, ritual where these uh, women are being prepared to kind of be courted by the king, she finds great favor in the eyes of the king's eunuchs, who are kind of making sure um, the women are going through the beautification process well. And uh, at the end of this, she gets brought to the king and she finds great favor before the king. Um, she's chosen not only, she not only finds favor before the king, but she is chosen as the queen to replace Vashti. And uh, so much so that the king throws this massive feast for Esther, celebrating her beauty, celebrating how much he delights in her. And then we find at the end of chapter two that uh, Esther is going to, or that Mordecai just happens to overhear an assassination attempt on King Asherus. And so Mordecai responsibly goes and tells Esther, who tells the king, who then arrests the people who are going to assassinate him. And uh, that's the end. It says it's recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. That is an important line. That's the last verse of chapter two that we'll come back to in a little bit. So, so far we've seen Esther has been chosen queen to replace Vashti and her uncle Mordecai, both Jews, uh, ha is one who has foiled an assassination attempt and shown loyalty, uh, immense loyalty to this king who is ruling over them, who is not a Jewish king. And then we meet this man named Haman. Haman is an official in King Asherus's court. He's get promote, he gets promoted uh, very quickly. And uh, what we see about Haman is, and what we, we see about King Mordecai, which is important when we, or not King Mordecai, excuse me, it's Monday morning. Uh, King Asherus is that each of them are very prideful men. They are not concerned for the well-being of, of other people as much as they are for themselves. And Mordecai, or uh, sorry, Haman uh, kind of when he gets paraded through the city, everyone bows down to Haman and pays him uh, his respects. But Mordecai does not. Mordecai refuses to kneel to Haman. And just this petty slight, just as Vashti was with King Asherus, is enough to just eat at Haman's brain. He is so frustrated with Haman um, that he doesn't know what to do. But he knows he wants to kill Mordecai. But he is so upset that he not only wants to kill Mordecai, he wants to eradicate all of Mordecai's people. He's so frustrated with Mordecai that he wants to kill all of the Jews. And so here we see this opposition still towards God's chosen people. And so he actually bides his time for five years. Five years he waits until he finally um, is able to present a request to King Asherus. And uh, he basically says, here's the deal, King. There are these people who don't follow your laws. He's very careful to not name this people group. Uh, there's these people who don't follow your laws. Uh, they are different than you. They don't worship the king. Uh, if you give me money, I will go and I will destroy these people if that seems good to you. And so the king's like, hey, there's this group of insurrectionists in my kingdom. This guy is going to let me pay him to go and take them out. And uh, this sounds great. This is a great political strategy. And so uh, Asherus uh, says, yep, that's super duper. And then um, Haman goes and begins to circulate this letter, which prescribes the destruction of the Jews. 
And so now we're into chapter four. Mordecai learns about this. He tears his clothes. And so he begins to talk. That's a sign of mourning. He begins to talk to Esther. And uh, he's talking through the eunuchs because he's not allowed to go into the king's court. And so he and Esther kind of have this interchange back and forth. But one thing that was really important is earlier in the book, it made the case that uh, no, none of the king's wives are able to go back to the king's chamber unless they are specifically desired or called by name. And to do that without being called back is to receive the death sentence unless the king extends as a sign of peace to that wife, the golden scepter. And so there's this real risk if someone were to go back to the king. And this is what Mordecai is telling Esther to do. He's saying, Esther, go to the king and let him know what Haman has done. And Esther is obviously nervous about this because she knows that this law exists. It is perhaps that she has even seen wives try to go back before the king um, and have lost their own lives or have been put out of um, his house. And then Mordecai says at the end, he says, don't think that you're going to escape what comes to the Jews just by nature of your position. And he says in 414, we'll come back to this, for if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise from the Jew, for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them, that's, those are the eunuchs, to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my young women will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish." Then Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther ordered him. So that's what we finished with on Friday. And then today we get into um, chapters 5 through 7. And so Esther goes into the king's court. And she stands in the court. And the king sees her. And he extends his scepter to her. He graciously allows her to enter. And he says in this stunning um moment, he says, Esther, what do you want, my dear queen? You may have up to half of the kingdom. So there's grace already in the presence of this king. And Esther says this, she says, uh, I want to have a feast. My request is if I found favor, uh, then fulfill my request and invite Haman to a feast that you and I will go to. And so, um, they go to this feast and, uh, uh, Haman feels pretty good about himself at this feast. He's been invited to it. It's just the queen and Esther. And at this feast, um, she says, the king says again, hey, what would you like from this? And Esther, perhaps biding her time, perhaps being a little nervous, not sure why, she says, let's have another feast tonight. And tonight I will tell you uh, what my request is. And so meanwhile, uh, two things happen. One, Mordecai, or excuse me, Haman uh, goes back home in between and he sees Mordecai not kneeling and he is just so livid. And what he is doing uh, is he go, he calls in his wife and his friends and he says, this is the deal. Uh, we need to do something about this. And his friends are like, uh, hey, you've been invited by Esther to a feast. The king and Esther love you. You can do anything you want. Build a gallows 75 feet high. Obviously overkill. He's obviously wanting to make a statement here. Build a gallows 75 feet tall and hang Haman or hang Mordecai, excuse me, on the gallows. Simultaneously, 
while this is happening, the king is trying to sleep and he's not sleeping well. And so what do you do when you can't sleep well? Well, you bring a big book of legal material and you begin to read it at bedtime. And so this is what King Asherus does. And he reads the account that was recorded in the Chronicles of the King of Mordecai foiling this assassination attempt on him. And he asks his, uh, his uh, officials, hey, what has been done for Mordecai? And they say, uh, nothing has been done for Mordecai. And so here Haman comes into the court. And what's Haman going to ask? Haman is going to ask for permission to kill Mordecai because he thinks he has the favor of the king. And so I love this part. What does the king say to Mordecai or to Haman? He says, Haman, what would you do for a man who deserves all the honor from the king? And who does this arrogant Haman think the king is asking him about? Himself. Haman assumes that the king is asking uh, Haman how Haman should be honored because Haman is the cherished apple of the eye of both the king and of Esther. And so Haman gives this elaborate plan of getting some of the king's clothes and the king's crown and getting put on the king's donkey and having a king's herald parade him around the city to declare all of the wonderful things that this person has done. And then uh, what happens is uh, the king says, all right, Haman, go do all of that for Mordecai. And so Mordecai is just absolutely livid. Um, and then in his anger, as he's just frustrated that he is the one proclaiming Mordecai's greatness around the city, he's invited back to the feast. And it's at that feast where Esther says, King, there is someone uh, who has the request I'm making is a request for my life and a request for my people. And the king says, who is it that has put this bounty out on you? And she says, it is Haman. And so the king is livid with Haman. And then ultimately Haman is hung on the gallows that the king is looking for some way to punish Haman. And one of the king's officials says, Hey, I just found this 75 foot gallow in the middle of town. And sure enough, the Haman is hung on the gallows he created for Mordecai. And this is how Esther saved the Jews. And so that's where we got to where we are. And this, that was probably a really convoluted, very Monday-esque um, description of what's going on um, in this story. But with that said, we are now going to begin to do the uh, look up, look in, look out component of this. And so in looking up, what does this passage teach us about God? Uh, interesting thing, I put this in the bio of this on Facebook. Uh, the book of Esther is one of two books that doesn't explicitly mention God. Uh, this and, and Song of Solomon, which depending on your translation, there's actually one word in Song of Solomon, which uh, is a compound word, which includes uh, what, what might be Yahweh. And so it might mention Lord in it. Um, but here in Esther, in this entire book, there's no mention of God, which is really unique because we see that the God of Israel is everywhere in this book. Uh, this book shows this unique nature of God's sovereignty. Uh, we looked at yesterday in 1 Peter, and we saw Peter talked about God's sovereign work over even difficult times. And he uses illustration of God's mighty hand. God's mighty hand is steering all of history. Uh, one book that was really revolutionary for me in seeing this was a book entitled under a similar theme by The Invisible Hand. Um, the Invisible Hand, and that was a book by uh, the late R.C. Sproul. And we see God's hand, even though he is absent from this text, guiding all of the events that are going on here. And this is of great hope for us because there will be times in our life where we feel that God is absent, where we feel that all of our life is being perhaps uh, just a victim of random chance that never comes out in our favor, and we have no positions of power, and we are only in positions which are uh, fragile, like Esther was in, like Mordecai was in, fragile positions. 
And yet God is working in all of this. And you think of just the intricate details that just so happen in this text, which can only happen at, the, at God's sovereign hand. First, that it would just so happen that these men would plot an assassination attempt in front of Mordecai. And it just so happens that Mordecai had family who died, who left him as the adopted father of a niece named Esther, who just so happened to be the king belo- or the queen beloved by King Asherus. And then we see uh, after Haman is initially frustrated with Mordecai, he bides his time for five years. And it just so happens in that five years that the king probably becomes increasingly fond for Esther. And she earns more and more favor in his court instead of Haman responding in the moment simply by killing Mordecai um, and then perhaps plotting for the Jews later on. This time is extended and God begins to set the table all the more for the deliverance of the Jews. And it just so happens that of all the legal mat, all of the bedtime reading material, he chooses, King Asherus chooses this legal binder, which just so happens to include the recording of Mordecai, who is, who delivered him, and he asked, has anything been done? And so it just so happened that the first time Mordecai saved the king, nothing was made, not even a thank you was given to this guy who saved the king's life. And it just so happens that while the king is reading this, Haman comes into the king's court. And it just so happens that Haman had just constructed a 75-foot gallows that just so happened when the plan was unfolded that one servant found it and hanged Haman on those gallows. God's hand is everywhere in this book. And the wonderful thing we see here is that what Esther is doing is Esther is showing all of these prophetic books we've been in where God is um, proclaiming his faithfulness to his people, even in exile. We are seeing that the promise of God is true, even when it seems God is absent. God has promised to preserve his people. And even in the hardest and seemingly most quiet times of providence, God is keeping his promises. God is working for your good, for his people's good, even when you cannot see it. And uh, we know this, and I love Mordecai's heart because in chapter four, he basically says this. He says, Esther, if you don't act, God's going to deliver the Jews from another way. Why? Because God made a promise to us. There's this immense trust that Mordecai has in this God. There's this covenant-keeping God of the Bible who has covenanted to save his people, and his people can take that to the bank. God will save his people, even if, in this instance, Mordecai understands he might die. But God will not neglect Israel. He will not withdraw his promise from his people. So we see God's sovereign hand in all of this. Uh, and it's really a wonderful story. And I hope hope you appreciate just the story aspect of Esther. Um, and then we come to looking in. What does this teach us about our hearts? Well, where we see when we look at God, the nature of divine sovereignty, what we actually see when it comes to looking into our own hearts is the nature of human responsibility. And this book um, really models what is often called compatibilism. And that is that God is sovereign and man is responsible. And just because man is responsible as independent actors does not mean God is not sovereign. And just because God is sovereign or in control does not mean man is not responsible. And together we see the unique nature of this, we see that Mordecai and Esther, though working in God's divine sovereign drama, were responsible to act in bold and dangerous ways. 
we see that, um, again, if you look at the prophetic books and all the things that we're talking about, is, is part of why God's people were to go into exile was to cause them to realize that God has been immensely faithful to them. It was to create this faithful remnant, this believing remnant. And we see that for Mordecai, this has worked. Mordecai recognizes, we see this all throughout the text, Mordecai recognizes that God is faithful, that God is good, and that disobedience and uh, false worship never get God's people anywhere. Um, and so when everyone else is falling down and bowing and showing this posture of worship towards Haman, Mordecai doesn't. And that is so bold and so countercultural and something that is difficult for us to understand when it comes to seeing things that our culture worships. Um, are we prone to bow because everyone else is bowing? Are we prone to worship because everyone else is worshiping? Or do we understand, uh, like Mordecai does, that our worship, that our affection, that our lives are dedicated not to anything in this world, but the God who created it? And so Mordecai was responsible in that moment to act in obedience to God instead of adoration to a human. And then we see Esther, and she is both timid at one point and bold, and probably timid when she's bold, when she goes before the king. Um, Esther realizes there's this weight, there's this danger, and she also recognizes, as we should, in moments where we um, uh, are uncertain of the consequences, but we know that we need to act, what does she do? She calls people to pray for her. She prays, her friends pray. Mordecai gets all of the Jews praying. And this captures both this humility that God is in control and we are not, but also this responsibility that we need to act and we need prayer for that. And there's two things that I think are on her mind when she is acting responsibly in light of this. One is her corporate concern for her people. Mordecai says, hey, Esther, if, if this happens, what makes you think that you'll be spared? And I actually think that Esther could have been spared from all this. She was the beloved queen. Uh, no one knew about her Jewish identity. That's one thing Mordecai told her not to do is don't tell anyone you're Jewish, which is why she was able to set up this massive tiger trap for King Haman because neither the king nor, or not King Haman, for just Haman, neither the king nor Haman knew that she was a Jew. And so she could have been quiet. She could have watched. Um, either deliverance come from a different place in this time, or she could have watched a massive genocide of the people that were in Babylon, and perhaps it was just the Jews who were in Jerusalem who would survive, um, or the Jews that were in Susa would be killed and Jews in Jerusalem would survive. But she recognized that she was part of her people. Um, Charles Spurgeon talks about this being a great representation of the church, where we need to understand uh, that if one part of the body uh, suffers, the whole body suffers. And that we, even though we might be fine in any specific circumstance, just because we benefit from something does not mean that we ought not responsibly act on behalf of those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Esther recognizes this corporate concern, and she also recognizes the divine nature of her promotion to queen. You can imagine Esther did not particularly love being a queen in a harem of a pagan king. And yet... It was precisely because she was there that she recognized that God had put her in a unique position where she had been sinned against, where she was uh, oppressed in many ways, and yet she was going to faithfully obey God and perhaps be the way in which God would deliver his people. She recognizes that God had orchestrated this whole thing, just as Mordecai said in 4 verse 14, that perhaps you were brought to this kingdom for this very purpose. 
And so we see the nature of our responsibility to act even inside of God's sovereignty. And just because God is sovereign does not mean that our actions are fearless, does not mean that we will not be anxious. We saw that in first Peter. We're going to come back to that. I'm going to pigeonhole that. We'll come back to that in looking out. But the second thing we see in looking in here is I think we see uh, in chapter five, um, when Esther goes to the king, uh, a bit of how we approach God uh, as Christians. Uh, Esther was representing the Jewish people, and she went to the king whom the people could not approach. And even uh, the other wives could not just go and approach him because uh, it, he held this ruling ability to judge them for coming in. And yet Esther goes to this king and he extends the scepter because Esther has won his affection. And I think of us, God is not, every the king in this book is a pandering megalomaniac. Haman is self-obsessed. God is not any of those things. And yet our sin cannot allow us to stand before God because our sin deserves to be punished. It is exclusive company who stands before God the Father. And yet Jesus has won affection for us because of his blood. God has extended his scepter of mercy towards us in Jesus Christ, where because Jesus is beloved in the eyes of the Father, those who are clothed in Jesus' blood are welcomed into his court, safe from destruction because of all of the love God has for Jesus. Man, when we are clothed in Jesus' love, uh, that God the Father, in John 17, Jesus is praying for all of this, and he's actually praying that we, as God's people, be brought into this triune relationship, that the same love God the Father shares with Jesus and Jesus shares with the Holy Spirit, that we actually participate in that love. What a remarkable thing that Jesus brings us into the court of God because he is the beloved by God. And by nature, if we belong to Jesus, we are beloved by God. And so, and I love this because you see, uh, when all this is happening, um, Haman is parading, uh, or, uh, through town again, and Mordecai refuses to bow, even though he knows there's threats being breathed against him. And why is Mordecai able to continue to obey? Because he knows he has an end with the king. And so do we, don't we? When times are hard in life, what causes us to stand upright when otherwise we would bow down and cave? We know we have an in with the king. We know we have one who speaks in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who keeps us from sinning uh, and promises that we will not be crushed in the end. And in this, this new Esther, this Jesus has given us uh, a new promise, right? At the end of Matthew, Jesus sends out his church for the disciple-making work in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus says at the end, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And so the promise preserving God's people remains. And so as we go out as God's covenant people, we have the same promise that God will endure us, that God will not be far from us, even when it seems like culture is rising against us, even when it seems we, we read the pages of our life and we don't do not see the word of God anywhere. We don't see him mentioned by name. We know God is with us because Jesus has drawn us close. And so what this means when we begin to look out is that we need to understand that nature of divine responsibility and human sovereignty. Every aspect of your life, your relationship status, be it single, be it married, uh, your employment status, whether you're a student, whether you have kids, the neighborhood you live in, all of the, in, in Acts 17, uh, we see that, that God says, uh, or that, that Paul is saying at the Areopagus that God has determined even the size of your dwelling place so that men might find their way back to God. God is in control of the intimate details of your life. Why? So that just as 
Esther acted for the preservation of God's people, we might act for the growth of God's people in the disciple-making mission of the church. And so, just today, on Monday morning, I encourage you to look around at God's purpose and God's promise in your life. When it comes to God's purpose, what are the positions, just as Esther has been put in a position of queen, what are the positions that God has placed you in that give you a unique access to those around you, a unique access to uh, maybe it's just your coworkers, maybe it's your children, maybe it's your customers. Uh, look at the unique context God's given. Just like Esther was in a context, we are in a context. There are needs, there are desires, there are brokenness in our lives, in our world, and in the lives of the people around us. And we see that purpose. We know that God has called us to proclaim his gospel, to help the church follow Jesus, to call new people to Christ. And we know that in that purpose, we have a promise that just as Mordecai faithfully trusted that deliverance would come for them, we faithfully trust that God's church will proclaim this gospel and God will convert souls and God will endure the church. And we, just as we saw in 1 Peter, we will one day, though perhaps this world may strike us, that God himself will one day restore, confirm, and strengthen us in Jesus Christ in the resurrection from the dead. And so I pray that today we look at the whole sum of our lives and that this book, which is ripe with the absence of God, reminds us that God is not absent in our life, that he is here and he is working for his glory and for our good, and that we must be responsible actors under his promise given to us in Jesus Christ, that because we have access to the king, we have the strength of the king behind us in every aspect of the day. So that's what I see in uh, Ezra, or not Ezra, Esther this morning. We see the nature of God's sovereignty. We see our responsibility. And we pray that God uses this connection point to endure the church and to call others to his glory until Jesus comes to take us home. So let me pray for, for this today. Um, and then we can get on with our Monday morning. So Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, Lord, I think of my neighbors um, whom... I, uh, I am weak and fearful when it comes to evangelism. I'm weak and fearful when it comes to engaging with them. And yet, Lord, I have the promise of Jesus in the disciple-making mission, uh, and I ought to rely on that, that everything about my life uh, has been sovereignly ordained so that I might act responsibly knowing that God's promise is for me. And that even when things seem hard, and even when things seem difficult, and even if culture does not respond as King Asherus responded to Esther, that you have still called us to obey you and not fear of man. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that our church is typified by this view of responsibility under God's divine promise for us in Jesus Christ. For if God is for us, who can be against us? So, Lord, let us live boldly because we know that God is not absent from history. We know that even in the darkest times, God is still moving and God is still calling us to trust in him. Lord, we pray that Missoula, that our city feels the weight of your power through the witness of your church. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Have a good week. Enjoy a wonderful sunny day in Missoula.